The scripture reading today is Ezra chapter 1 and parts of chapter 2. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the one, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go to, up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them. 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. And all these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. The exiles return. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and others. Verse 36, the priests. Verse 40, the Levites. Verse 43, the temple servants. Verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants. And from verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels were 435 and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chloe. 
Fiona, happy birthday. Great. Uh, welcome, everyone. Um, I've been sick this week, so you might have like a, like a toned down version of me, which you're like, how much more toned down can I get? But you're going to find out this morning. Um, pray for my voice. Uh, if you could, um, I'll make it through this. So, um, If you missed last week's introduction on Ezra and Nehemiah, um, I really suggest you go back and listen to that. Um, not necessarily because it was so great, although some of you are welcome to think that if you want to. Um, but because without the knowing the context of, of where these stories kind of fit in the timeline of the Old Testament and the history of the, old, uh, of the people of Israel, um, you're not going to be able to fully grasp what's going on here. And uh, we have a lot to learn from these two ancient books. Um, so do make sure you're caught up. Um, simply put, though, Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the return and the restoration of these exiled Jews um, they've been scattered across this empire of Babylon and then Persia um, because of their unfaithfulness to God's covenant, um, scattered across, but they're now returning back to their homeland of Judah, back to their city, Jerusalem, uh, to rebuild. They're going to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild their community and their city, um, and hopefully rebuild their relationship with God. Um, do you ever feel like an exile? living in a foreign land. If you're in your MCs this week, you might have had that discussion. Do you ever feel that way? Um, do you ever feel that urge to go home? Like that, that feeling that um, this isn't your, your home, um, that there's a big part of your life here is like waiting, um, clinging on to hope, waiting for home. Um, there's a couple different ways you can feel that way, Right? Like, I know some of you literally are not from here. You're from a different place. So you're like, I feel that like I'm living in a foreign land for sure. Um, the Jews in the exile could relate to you. I'm sure they missed home. Like, I'm sure they missed just the pleasures of home, their old neighborhood, knowing where to go, their neighbors, food, spices that you could only get back home. Um, so some of you might feel that way, like a physical exile, living in a foreign land. Um, but in another, even more important sense, we can feel like spiritual exiles. And it's that kind of exile that Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah want us to have in mind. Um, yes, these were Jews. They were physically exiled from their homeland. But their greatest problem was a spiritual exile. Um, their, their relationship with God was at stake here. And, and that, was, that was what their identity was built on. They were, they were God's people. They were His chosen people, His children. Um, here in the Old Testament, without the temple... Um, that relationship is, is on the line. There's no temple sacrifice. There's no atonement for sins. Um, this is how they related to him and were in relationship with him. No law, no temple sacrifices. Who are they? Um, and they're away from home without any of those things. It's all on the line here. So being, being spiritual exiles uh, was their biggest problem, and, and it's our greatest problem as well. And feeling like a spiritual exile, which I admit has physical overlap as well, but that, that spiritual exile problem and feeling, um, it's something that every single person in this room can, can feel and relate to, um, whether you're a Christian or even whether you're, you're not a Christian here this morning, um, we can feel like exiles. And so some of you would say, 
I'll be honest with you, I'm, I, I not consider myself a Christian, uh, but I'm here because I feel like something's missing. Um, I, I, I have that, that not-at-home feeling spiritually. Uh, I recognize that there's this, this longing within me that I can't seem to figure out, I can't seem to ever satisfy. Um, so you might be here and you're curious. Great, you're very welcome. You're just here like, exploring, or maybe you're just here because someone dragged you along. Glad you're here. Um, but if you're honest with yourself, uh, regardless of why you're here, you can feel like a spiritual exile, like you're, you're wandering spiritually. But then also for the, the Christians in the room, uh, although you've found a spiritual home in Jesus, you, you, have, you have recognized that that longing in your heart can only be satisfied by Him, you still feel like an exile in this world. And um, so you can relate to this story because this is a community living in this now and not yet time. Like they're, they're waiting, they're clinging to hope, waiting for God to fulfill these promises that He's made to them. And you feel that way as well. And you, in one sense, you have the fulfillment of all of those promises in Jesus, um, but you're still waiting for the, the, the consummation of those promises. Do you feel that way? You, you have that feeling of living at a staging post rather than the final destination. You're, you're waiting to be brought home. And so for each of those spiritual exile groups, Jesus is the home that you're longing for. And that's, that's, that's um, what we believe at Village. That's what we proclaim here boldly every week, that, that Jesus is the home away from exile that you were destined for. And that, that longing in your heart to go home, that, 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 that's this longing, that's this draw that God has created you with. He's placed that, that longing in your heart, and it's this draw to Jesus. That, that's the big idea of today's sermon, the thesis, is this is a, a, a return to a home that you've never known. Jesus is the home away from exile for which you were destined. Um, that's what we're going to pick up on in uh, the first two chapters of Ezra. Let me pray for us one more time, and we'll look at that. And God, we thank you that you uh, love us. We thank you that you uh, have, have cared for us and you have revealed yourself to us. And we thank you for your word. And this word that, that Paul says you have breathed out uh, that, is, that is helpful for us to uh, correct us and to rebuke us and to teach us. This, this word that's this, this light unto the path, light for our feet as we make our way forward. So thank you for Ezra and Nehemiah that do that for us, uh, that show us the way, that, that, that help us to see Jesus more clearly. Um, would you give us what we need this morning, Lord? Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Um, I promise I won't do this every single week, but just because we're at the, the beginning here, uh, let me remind you uh, what we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah is we're going to make our way through three stories. They're kind of three separate stories, three, think of them as these three returns, these three waves of returns of people, uh, these exiles making their way home. Um, each of these stories focuses on a different aspect of this rebuilding of Jerusalem. Um, kind of like the Chronicles of Narnia again, like they're separate stories, and when you're in one of the stories, there's not a whole lot of focus on the other stories, there's not a whole lot of like cross-referencing going on between these three stories, um, but they're all telling this one big story, 
Um, so you, you have the first story that we're going to get into this morning is in chapters 1 to 6 of Ezra, and that's the, the, the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, that return is led by a couple different leaders, but the main one is Zerubbabel. Um, you have this other priest called Yeshua that is uh, helping him along as well. Uh, the second story will be in Ezra chapter 7 to 10. Um, this return is led by Ezra himself, and he'll be focusing on the rebuilding of the community um, which involves reinstating the law and teaching the Torah. The third story will be in Ezra, uh, Nehemiah 1 to 7, where uh, Nehemiah leads the rebuilding of, of the city walls and the repopulating uh, of the city, okay? So here, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the story begins. The, the journey begins. The journey home begins. Um, this morning, uh, in the first two chapters, we're just going to look at that journey home. Um, and just, we're going to pull out three things about Israel's journey from exile to their home, and, and what's the parallel for us uh, as we are in, ex- in our exile, making our way to our home in Jesus. Um, let's read again from verse 1. Uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. This is what it said. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God bring, uh, be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Okay? So it says, King Cyrus, king of Persia, he says, you can go home now. Uh, go home, rebuild the house of the Lord. And we looked at this last week. Why are they going home? Um, on the surface level, because Cyrus has told them they could. They've, he's made this declaration. But, but why did Cyrus make this declaration? Verse 1 tells us that, that God was behind it all. He's, he's the one that stirred up uh, Cyrus to make this declaration. So this is the first thing that we see about the, the, how the journey begins. That, that God is the initiator of his people's return from exile. God is always the initiator of his people's return from exile. Um, verse 1 says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, so he made this proclamation. So, so their, their return from exile home, it's based on two main things. Uh, firstly, it's based on the providence of God, that he is the one stirring in these hearts. He even uses pagan kings to accomplish his purposes. He stirs in the spirit of Cyrus. Um, we don't have any solid evidence to suggest that, that God has stirred in His Spirit in a way that Cyrus is now uh, one of God's people, that, that he is now turned from his pagan ways, and he now wants to work to fulfill God's purposes for God's glory. Um, there's actually more evidence that suggests maybe the opposite is true. Um, there's, an, there's an artifact in the British Museum that you can go see called the Cyrus Cylinder. Um, it's this, this clay cylinder that was... Uh, discovered, it was dug up in the ancient city of Sea, like this story. Uh, this, this is the Persian conquest of Babylon. Um, it's, it's King Cyrus, and on it is these declarations telling these exiles 
in his kingdom, in his empire from across Persia, that they can go home. Um, and this is, this is how he has peace. This is his, his motive for uh, keeping peace, making sure they're all content. Um, he's not necessarily only loyal to the God of Israel, Yahweh, here. And you can actually hear it in this declaration, can't you? In verse 3, he says, Whoever is among you of his people, may his God be with him. Uh, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He's the God who's in Jerusalem. So there's these many kind of gods. He's, this is his way to kind of make peace. And no solid evidence that, he's, that the God is stirring in Cyrus so that he wants to work out God's glory, uh, God's purposes for God's glory. Uh, but nonetheless, God is stirring him up to fulfill his purposes in order to bring his people home. He's, he's stirring in his spirit. Um, we don't know exactly what this looked like. And we can be tempted, I think, sometimes to, um, I don't know whether any other word, but to like hyper-spiritualize it. Um, God's stirring up in his spirit. Did Cyrus go into some kind, of, some kind of trance that he woke up from and God has kind of implanted this in his mind to, to kind, of, uh, kind of wake up and want to do? He's his desire to make this proclamation. I don't know. Maybe it's God. He can do whatever he, he wants. He can stir in any way he pleases. Um, there's, there's good evidence, even kind of extra-biblical evidence, to suggest that it, it could, this stirring could just be kind of normal earthly ways that God works through. Um, like most of the time God stirs, he, he uses kind of normal earthly ways that we can look to be like, oh, that makes sense. Like there's a historian, Josephus, he's this ancient Jewish historian, uh, he wrote that Daniel was part of this stirring up. Uh, Daniel was there the night that this Medo-Persian empire conquered Babylon, and, and he suggested that, that Daniel showed Cyrus this prophecy of Isaiah, that Isaiah made 150 years prior, this prophecy that said this Cyrus is going to uh, restore the Israels back to uh, Jerusalem. And so maybe Daniel showed him this this pro- this. Uh, um, this prophecy that Isaiah made, uh, Cyrus reads this and says, wow, that's me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be part of this. Uh, and he kind of stirs him up in that way. I don't know. We don't know the details of the stirring, but that's not really the point. And um, the Bible often does this thing where it's going to give you the information that you need. And the, 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 here's what God wants to, to show you. Uh, and the point that we're meant to receive here is that God somehow in some way stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to do this. What an amazing God he is. That's what you should be feeling uh, when you read that. Like, what comfort is it to know that, that God is in control of the universe, that, 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 that he will accomplish his purposes, and he uses whomever he wishes to do it. Um, that, that fact should change the way that we as Christian exiles should, should live in this world. Um, it, it, sh- it should change what we put our hope in, in the now. Like, I th- it's, I think it's important to engage with, with kind of earthly politics. Um, it's good to vote, but earthly politics are not what we hang our hopes on, um, especially when, when things go wrong, um, when things are bad. We don't have this anxiety. We don't have this fear when things aren't going the way we think they should. And someone, I had this conversation with someone uh, this week. Uh, we we're talking about the new prime minister. And she said, are you as a pastor, are you scared at all that we have a Hindu prime minister now. And my initial reaction was, I haven't really given it much thought, I don't know, so maybe that's a clear enough answer of no, I guess not. Um, but the more I've reflected on that, that question, especially as I've been reading this Ezra text, the firmer 
my answer is of, no, I'm not scared. Like, like, what reason do we have to be afraid when our God is sovereign over all? Like, we have a God who, even when things are terrible for His people, He's still in control. He, he's working out His purposes perfectly. And the Bible shows repeatedly that He even uses pagan kings to accomplish His will. And I, I don't think that means that we don't engage, that, that we don't vote, we don't have to do all we can to have the best leaders. I'm not making any judgment on, on uh, Rishi Sunak either. My point is that we never lose heart. Like we never give in to fear or anxiety, no matter who is on earthly thrones, because we have a God who stirs in whomever He pleases to accomplish His purposes. He is sovereign over all. Like what peace and comfort and joy we have because of the providence of God. Uh, the second thing their return was based on was the faithfulness of God. Um, simply put, God always keeps His word. Um, so just before we're told that the Lord stirs in Cyrus, we're told why He does this. It's so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So, so God does this. He, he, he stirs in Cyrus to, to make this proclamation to bring His people home. He does that obviously because He loves His people, but He also does it because He must keep His word. Here on display, in the very first words of Ezra, is this faithfulness of God to His people and this faithfulness to His promises, to His Word, even, even, in, even while they're in, in exile. And why are they in exile? They're being punished for their unfaithfulness to God's covenant. In our understanding of, of, of justice and faithfulness, um, we're meant to read this story, we read the story of the, old, uh, the people of the Old Testament, and we th- we're meant to think they don't deserve God's kindness, they don't deserve His faithfulness. And, and that point is made over and over in the Old Testament because uh, God stresses the grievousness of their unfaithfulness to Him by saying, I relate to you as a husband, and you are my bride. And He says, I was your husband, and you cheated on me repeatedly adultery over and over and over again. Like most people in, in, in marriages in our society would, would, wouldn't even put up with one instance of adultery, let alone repeated adultery. So we're meant to feel the injustice of Israel's unfaithfulness. We're meant to think that God deserves a faithful bride, one that doesn't constantly turn her back on Him. They don't deserve to be taken back. But God gives His faithfulness to them anyway. Because he loves them despite their sin, and because he's made a promise, and he always keeps his word. And we're told he's made these promises through these prophets, and one of them is mentioned by name here is Jeremiah. And so, if you don't know who Jeremiah is, uh, he was a prophet of God who lived in the final decades of the southern tribe of Judah. Um, and if you've read the Old Testament of, of Jeremiah, Old Testament book of Jeremiah, uh, which uh, Ezra assumes that, that you have, he mentions him here, uh, you'll find that, that Jeremiah, through his book, has given many, many words of warnings of judgment uh, for Judah. Like most of his book is these words of judgment. Uh, the first 24 chapters of, of Jeremiah are, are basically God, through his prophet Jeremiah, accusing them of idolatry, accusing them of unfaithfulness to the covenant that they entered into with God. 
that this broken covenant, this, this adultery, and he's, he's, he's pointing out all the ways that they've turned from God, all the ways that they are not living according to his ways. Um, so in, in the Mosaic law, social justice is a big deal. Like, like caring for the poor was a big deal. Caring for the widows was a very big deal, and they're being neglected. Um, some of the people uh, are even adopting uh, pagan religious practices, and, and they're uh, practicing child sacrifice. Like, they've gone off the rails completely. And in chapter 25, Jeremiah warns them. He, he predicts as judgment that, that Babylon is going to come and conquer them, and they do, um, and that there's going to be 70 years of, of exile, and that's what happens. And he, he prophesied that before it happened, and he was able to do that because God was filling him and informing him. These are the words of God to his unfaithful bride. So Jeremiah is filled with these words of, of, of warnings of judgment, um, but he also gives them words of hope. And right in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, chapters 30 to 33, of this section of profound hope for Israel. And it's all about the restoration of Israel. And so Jeremiah is saying, things are going to get bad for you, because of your unfaithfulness. For 70 years, you're going to be lost. You're going to be in exile. But hang on, because there's hope. Because there's always hope with God. And that, that section is filled with these promises for after the exile. And he talks about this promise of, of the people returning to their land. He's this promise of this Messiah who would shoot up from Judah this promise that all the nations would, would, would one day recognize Israel's God as the one true God. And in the center of this section of hope is this poem that's this promise from God to his people. And he actually calls this promise a new covenant, and which would have been exciting for them to hear. A new covenant, a better covenant, like I like new things. That would have caught their attention. And, and we read this promise last week. I won't read it all again, but it's this, it's this promise of a new heart. He's going to write his law on their insides, on their heart, and he'd forgive their sins forever. And it's those prophetic promises of, of hope that these exiles are clinging to, and they're just waiting for them to come true. And it's these promises that God will do. He will be faithful to them eventually. Um, and it's, it's with those promises of God in mind that this initial journey home from the exile begins. But again, what's the main point of the start of the journey home is, is that God is the initiator. It, it, it's, it's by His faithfulness, by His power that these people are being called home. God is stirring up these hearts for this return. Um, and did you catch the second stirring? Firstly, he stirs up the spirit of Cyrus so that this decree is made. But secondly, in verse 5, verse 5 says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So, so for this, this return home to begin, many hearts need to be stirred, including the hearts of these exiles. What's the parallel for us? Again, the big idea, Jesus is the home away from exile to which we are called to. And the parallel is, is it's God who is calling each person to return to Jesus. Though you've been in, in exile from your birth by sin, which is Ephesians 2, right? 
You you are dead in your sins. You're exiled away from home, away from Jesus, by sin, from birth. Even still, because of His faithfulness and because of His power, He calls the dead to rise. Paul puts it, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So being rich in mercy because of His unstoppable love, by grace God is stirring in us. He is calling us. He is making us alive together with Christ. What a terrible exile we are in. Not just in a foreign land, but dead but still he stirs. Isn't that amazing? A question for you this morning is, is how is God stirring in you? Is he stirring in you to want more? Is he, do you feel that stirring to find peace, to come home? Let me beg you to respond to that stirring. That brings us to the second thing about this journey home. Firstly, God stirs. He invites, but we must all respond to the stirring of our spirit by God. There's a response needed, and this is what you see begin to happen in verse 5. Remember, God's not done stirring in hearts. Uh, There's more stirring to come. We'll see that. There's more waves of returnees, more waves of responders, because his stirring just seems to be irresistible. But but here in chapter 2, We're given this list of exiles returning home because God has stirred in their hearts to return. I'm not going to go through each name. I think Chloe's probably glad that I didn't make her read all of them. But they're all important. They're all incredibly important. Important enough for God to put in His Word. Imagine your family name being in there. It makes me just want to read it now anyways. And lots of things to to pull out of those. Here's just one thing uh, for you to notice this morning from this long list, it's just the diversity of the people responding and returning. You see in verse 70, there are priests, there are Levites, there are singers, there are gatekeepers, there are temple servants. Remember the main goal of this first return is to do what? Rebuild the temple. So it it makes sense there would be priests and temple workers and these choirs. But don't miss that diversity of this 42,000 strong return. Because what you see here is there's a place for everyone in this new home. There's a place for all. And this mirrors the New Testament, doesn't it? The kingdom of Jesus is the only home where everyone finds a place. Singers and builders, young and old, nobles and peasants. Everyone is welcome. There's no litmus test for entry into this home. In fact, the worse off you are, the better. This is the invitation that is ringing out, that those whose spirits are being stirred by God can respond and join in the journey. It's that simple. You'll see that this is an invitation to 
not just respond, but that response is this repentance. It's a turning from our sinful ways to live holy lives. That's a, you're going to see that theme through S. Nehemiah. It's this, this, this return to walking according to God's ways again. But this is exactly what you're created for. Life with your Creator. This is an invitation back to Eden to walk with Him according to His ways. What a beautiful invitation to all. Here's another way to say it, a more New Testament way to put it, language that we use. Jesus is building His church. Jesus is building His church. He's calling many from death to life, into life, into His kingdom, into His family, into His home. He's calling men and women. He's calling children and adults, business professionals and addicts. All are welcome. He's calling all of these people, and each of them are a valuable and needed member of his household. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe everyone in this room is equal in dignity and value? That, that each has been given gifts by God? That each has a role to play in the building of his kingdom on earth? So firstly, have you responded to his stirring, to his calling? And if so, what's your role? Like, what, what's, what's your calling? Are you just along for the ride? Or do you see yourself as a needed member for this household? You are called to join God in the renewal of all things. That's what he's doing with his church family. Come and rebuild. Come help me. And lastly, this is a journey with an ending. This is a journey we're on, but it has a final destination. You have to remember that. We're not there yet, but it's coming. All those who are swept up by God's stirring and respond to the invitation are going to a place they've never been. This is a home they've never known, yet it's theirs by promise. It's the home they've never known, but it's theirs by decree of God's Word. And you have to remember the context here. They've been in exile for 70 years. That means the, the original generation, generation of exiles are gone. All these people returning were born in exile. Their main leader, Zerubbabel, born in exile. It's all they've ever known. He's returning to this home that he's never been before. And you and me, born in sin. This is all we've ever known. But God's promised to bring us home. It, it's a home. We've never fully known what we long for, and it's been promised to us. Listen, Christian, this world as it is will never be or feel like your home. It'll never be or feel like your home. Like, even though we have a, a home in Jesus, here on earth, as we continue we are elect exiles, as Peter puts it, we mentioned last week. We continue on as, as strangers and aliens in this world, not with God, but in this world. We're living in humble fear as we await the return of Christ. But it's a journey that ends somewhere. That we, like these ancient Jewish exiles, we're not home yet fully. We're at home in Jesus. That's the now reality that, we, that they lacked, Right? We are home in Jesus. That is secure. It's an eternal reality. We are in Christ. 
Nothing can separate us from that home. Somehow, according to Ephesians 2, again, we've been saved by grace and God has raised us up with Him and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realm. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that such a sweet and mysterious now reality that we live in? But it's also a not yet reality. We're we're waiting for Christ to come again. He's promised to come again. And as we've seen from His Word, He is faithful to His promises He's promised to come. He's promised to bring his people home to that final destination. A new Eden, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and earth. It's a now and not yet story. And do you see how this, this story in Ezra and Nehemiah, it's a story of exiles being brought home. And that story, it's one that points both backwards and forwards. And it's, it's actually quite obviously a retelling of the Exodus story. Have you picked up on that yet? And um, pay attention as we make our way through this, and you'll pick up in many ways that it is. And um, it's a retelling of the Exodus story. Won't get too deep into the Exodus parallels this morning because there's a lot more to come, especially in that middle Ezra story. But here's a few parallels that we've seen already. So looking back, you compare that, that, that story of the first Exodus when God brings his people out of, out of uh, captivity in Egypt, you compare that one to Ezra's story of the Exodus. In Exodus 9, 12, we're told that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. In Exodus 1, 1, God continues to mold the hearts of pagan kings, but this time he does it in a positive way. He's stirring up the spirit of Cyrus. In the first Exodus, Israel's freed from captivity, and they begin their journey to the promised land. And Ezra, they're freed from exile in Babylon, and they begin their journey back home to Canaan. In the first Exodus, uh, in chapter 12, verses 35 to 36, we're told that when Israel are finally free to go, Pharaoh's like, get out of here. We're told that because the Lord has given them favor in the sight of the Egyptians, note, it's the Lord at work there, because the Lord has given them favor, Their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, give them silver and gold and jewelry. Moses calls this the plundering of Egypt. In Exodus story, this happens again. We see in verse 4, Ezra, verse 4, again, I'm mixed up, thank you. Ezra, verse 4, the Lord, he does it again. It's the Lord working, again, in Cyrus' declaration. Cyrus says, let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the man of his place with silver and gold. Their Babylonian Persian neighbors do the same in verse 6. All who were about them aided them with silver and gold, with goods and beasts. It's the second plundering. In the book of Numbers, uh, Moses numbers Israel on their march home. Ezra 2, Israel's numbered on their march home. The, the Ezra's Exodus story you'll see ends in chapter 6 with the celebration of the Passover. Like, hello, could it be any more, uh, more obvious? The writer is not being subtle here. It's, it's beyond obvious. He wants his readers to see this as another Exodus story. But more importantly, this is an Exodus story that's pointing forwards. It's not just pointing back to that first Exodus. It's a foretelling of Jesus Christ. It's, it's looking forward to when Jesus will bring his exiles into his forever kingdom, the new earth. And we as New Testament believers, we've experienced our own exodus. The, uh, the exodus story, the Bible has these anchor stories, and the exodus story is an anchor story 
that is pointed back to and, and retold in, in, in kind of different ways. It's replicated. And we have experienced an even greater exodus. Jesus is our true and better Moses who leads his people not out of captivity to a nation, but out of captivity to sin and death. So Ezra's story is pointing back to that first exodus, but more importantly, it's pointing forward to a future one. It's preparing us for that. And we are the exiles of the ultimate exodus with Jesus. We've experienced that, but even still, we're waiting on one last final exodus, aren't we? When Christ comes again to bring us to our forever home. Do you get that now and not yet aspect yet? We are now in Christ. We are home as we wait for his not yet return to our final home with him. We long for a home we've never known and it's coming for us. We're living in the now and not yet church. Are you clinging to hope in the waiting? Are you, are you trusting in the faithfulness and the power of God as you wait? Or are you giving in to fear and anxiety? Trust Him. He's coming back to bring you home. But in the meantime, He's in control. He's, he's unfolding His purposes. He's continuing to stir in hearts. And he's using you to do this. He's using you to unfold his purposes. We, 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 we saw that a couple weeks ago, didn't we? He has sovereignly placed you in a situation to see what is broken and to remember his promises and to pray. To be about the renewal of his creation. He's building his church in the meantime. In the very last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation 22, um, it's this spectacular scene of our final destination, where this journey ends, uh, and it ends with Jesus on the throne of God, um, and His people worshiping Him, and His people reigning with Him forever and ever. It's this beautiful thing that, that our hearts are longing for. Now, that's just the first five verses of that chapter, and then, and then the rest of that chapter, the Bible ends with this section of Jesus repeating these words, Behold, I'm coming soon. He repeats it three times. Behold, I'm coming soon. Surely, I'm coming soon. I'm not leaving you. I'm coming back and I'm going to bring you home. It's almost like that, 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 that's this final promise that he wants us to have in our minds in the here and not yet. It's what he ends with. The story's not finished yet. There's, there's work to be done. There's lots of prayers to be prayed. It's, it's going to get difficult, but remember... I'm coming soon. So remember those things. This is a journey that, that God is initiating. It's, it's His power. It's his, his faithfulness. It's a journey that He's calling you to respond to. Pay attention to that stirring. What's He doing in your heart? But it's a journey that, that ends somewhere. We're waiting for Him to end it. But in the meantime, we don't have fear. We don't have anxiety. Why? Because He is on the throne. Um, would you stand with me and we'll pray. Um, Lord, we pray this often, 
Uh, but we just thank you that uh, the success of this journey is not based on us. Uh, the success of, uh, of the renewal of creation, the success of you building your church, your kingdom on earth, is not based on our power, on our might, on what we're doing, but solely on what you are doing. It's not based on our faithfulness. It's based on your faithfulness. Lord, may we remember that. May that give us peace. May we sleep well at night knowing that. May it give us joy on this journey that's hard, that's so difficult, Lord. But we know you. We know who we have in you. The one who is in control. The one who is perfectly unfolding his plans in many ways that we don't understand, but may we trust you. Lord, I pray for those who you are stirring in their hearts this morning. Are we lost without your Holy Spirit stirring in us? Lord, I pray for those who have never responding, have never responded to that call. Uh, Lord, today, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day that they throw their trust on. Lord, I pray for the, the Christians in the room. Thank you that you continue to stir in our hearts, continue to call us. Lord, may we be aware of your, your activity, your work within us. And may we respond in faith. Um, show us what's ahead, Lord. Show us, give us what we need for the journey. That's what you've promised. Not that we know exactly when the journey ends or what's going to happen on the journey, but you've promised to give us exactly what we need for the journey. That main promise is, I'm going to never leave you. I'm going to never forsake you. I'm going to give you the strength. I'm going to give you the grace that you need. Usually that looks like when you're the weakest, when you're depending on me. Lord, teach us that. Thank you, Jesus, for your your love, your care, your presence. In your name we pray, amen.